Gates. Good morning. All right, I, I just gave you coffee. You got to do better than that. Good morning. Good morning. All right, welcome to Seacoast. My name is Pastor Dale. If you have a Bible, open to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, verse 41 today. And our renovation series of gospel stories that illustrate the grace of God at work in the lives of Jesus, His disciples, and especially emphasis on what did Jesus do to try to take this kind of crazy group of guys that he pulled together to be his initial leaders, how was he transforming them? How was he renovating them and their lives? And what do we learn from that? That we might be changed as well. So I'm glad you had your coffee. Let's pray. Father God, thanks so much for the fun of uh, relationships, friendships, chance to connect over coffee. Uh, thank you, Father, for our church. Thank you for your word. And thank you for the chance to study it together. That is the passion of my life because I know it's changed me. I hope, hope today, Father, that you will use it to change us as well. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. One of the strangest things about Jesus uh, was, at least for me, was how much he talked about money when he seemed not to care about it. You ever, think, you ever thought about that? I mean, here's a guy that about a sixth of his teachings relate to the, to the topic of money. One third, one out of every third, uh, one out of every three parables relate to money. What makes it odd is that Jesus owned next to nothing. He launched a global enterprise that he knew he was launching to go worldwide, but yet he raised no funds that I can see at least in these stories. He didn't do any fundraising, he didn't do any advertising, he never made a t-shirt, never had a blog, never had a website. Jesus had none of those things. He never had church buildings. But yet he talked about money. To me, I've been convinced over the years the reason Jesus talks about money is because Jesus does not love money, but he talks about money because he loves people. He talks about money because he loves people, and he knows people love money. I love money. At least I like it a lot. I try not to love it, but i got to admit, I like it. I like it. I like what it does. I like what it provides. I like the, the upside of being able to care for my family and pay my bills and live in one of the most beautiful spots in the world here in North County, San Diego. And so do you. Jesus is going to talk about money today, but he's going to do it in a very strange way. Can you imagine, for example, if Jesus were here in church today and he had his initial group of his uh, you know, posse of uh, 11, 12 disciples with him. And he said, you know, uh, let's do something different today. You know, when they're passing the offering bags, um, let's go watch what people get. Would that surprise you? Now you say, well, that'd be kind of hard to do, you know, because we write checks and we do online giving and all this kind of stuff. But imagine if none of us could write checks, because back in that day, they were not writing checks. Back in that day, they were not doing online giving. Back in that day, they had no credit cards. Back in that day, they didn't even use paper money. They used coins. And in general, the bigger the coin, the bigger the buck, Right? Some were worth more than others. But when people brought their offerings, they brought their coinage. So you can actually stand by the offering 
treasury box in the temple and people would come by to give and they'd have a they'd have a, they'd bring out their money bag and and they would dump their coins into the box so jesus says you know why don't we i, I want to just watch while people give now that just kind of seems improper even i mean i'm thinking jesus that's kind of a private thing why are you why are you doing that so today we're going to look at what i consider to be one of the strangest things jesus ever did one of the strangest assignments he ever gave to his followers let's watch people give we're going to see why he did it what he learned from it and then hopefully what he wanted to teach us through it as well So, Father God, we pray again that you would just teach us from your word. I thank you for this important topic in our lives. God, we get a little uptight when we talk about money, especially in church. So I pray that you'd help us relax, listen to Jesus, listen to what he taught his disciples, and simply say, and I would invite you to pray under your breath with me, Lord Jesus, teach me about money, because I think about it a lot. So teach me how to think about it, what to believe about it, but most importantly, what to believe about you. That's my prayer for the morning, in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's go to the story in Mark chapter 12. It's at the very end of the chapter, so first I want to set the context. Anytime Jesus does something, tells a story, has an event, almost always there's something in the context that kind of sets it up. And if you don't look at the context, it's easy to miss the point or to misinterpret the teaching of the passage that we'll see, which is only three short verses. So listen now to this story, four short verses. The context of the story is Jesus has been in the temple teaching. He's teaching on some heavy theology, important theology about God and life. For example, if you go back in chapter 12, you'll see Jesus teaching about the resurrection. He's teaching about the fact that, yes, there's life after death, and here's what it's like, and and the importance of understanding that, yes, resurrection is true. He goes from that to teaching about the truth about himself, about, yes, do you realize that the Christ is actually the Son of God, not just the Son of Man? And he tells a story about, about David and the Psalms, and he takes them to the Psalms to show that the Messiah was actually called Lord by David. So David calls the Messiah the Son of David his Lord. So, so he says, wow, if you realize the implications of that, Jesus is actually teaching on his own nature that he is the Son of God, that he is God come in human flesh. So Jesus is teaching heavy theology about the resurrection, about the nature of God, about who he is. And then all of a sudden, in that context, he pulls aside from his broad people that he's teaching and he kind of whispers to his disciples. And here's what he says to them. He says, and he sat down opposite the treasury, in other words, where they give, and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. Now, I I skipped a verse. Right before this, here's what he says when he pulls his disciples together. He says, and in his teaching, Jesus was saying, beware of the scribes who walk around in long robes. They look good. They dress nice. And they like respectful greetings in the marketplace. They're greeted as leaders and honored And they like the chief seats in the synagogue. So even when they come to church and to synagogue, people acknowledge, wow, that's a person of importance. In other words, he says, beware of these people. He says, because they want places of honor at banquets, but yet they devour widows' houses. 
In other words, they even take advantage of, of women who become widows. The husband dies. Maybe they're left without children and they're left really penniless and, and, and they take advantage of those situations and, and they rob them of their, of, their, of their livelihood and they don't care for widows, but they take advantage of, of widows. And then he adds this. And then after doing that, he says they, they, uh, they like to increase the, for appearance sake, they offer long prayers. These will receive a greater condemnation. God is really ticked when he sees that behavior. So he says, you know, beware of these religious leaders who like to, you know, walk around in their power outfits and look good and say long prayers and and impress people when they don't even care for widows. And he says, then he positions himself in the treasury. And it begins now in verse 41. We pick up our story. And here's the strange assignment, which I just call, hey, let's go watch people give. And here's how it goes. And then he sat down opposite of the treasury and he began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. And again, as I said, we could tell that. Because unlike today, when you know you write a check and if your check's little or big, nobody knows unless they look at your check. You fold it over or you carefully put it in the little offering bag. It makes no noise even, and away it goes. You know, the little offering bag goes by. And, you know, I saw a person a few years ago that said, you know, when I see that offering bag, to me, it, it's it's like the offering bag comes by saying, feed me, feed me, feed me. Okay, but but that's not our intent here. Okay, so we, you know, but the bag comes by, and we don't know what people give. But in this culture, it's different. Because now they're dropping coinage into the treasury box. And it's like, wow, listen to those coins hit the box, man. That guy takes out his bag and it's bulging and he's dumping his wealth in. And he says many rich people were coming to the temple and they were generous. They were giving large sums. And then this happens. He says, but. He says they were contributing to the treasury. He says, Truly I say to you, excuse me, I skipped it, verse 42. And then a poor widow came. A poor widow came and put in two copper coins, which amounted to about a cent. Now there's a Hebrew word there that doesn't really equate to what we call a cent. So if you're picturing a penny, that's the wrong thing to picture, but you're close. I'll explain it in a more in a minute. So she puts the cent in. It equates to about... A cent. And, and it says then this. It says, um, and then calling his disciples to him. So now Jesus gathers his, his, his troop together. And he says, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors of the treasury. For they put out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty. And he uses two phrases. Put in all that she owned. And all that she had to live on. End of story. So why does Jesus call attention to this poor widow and her gift? When many people were giving large amounts, Jesus saw the contrast in her. And he actually says, guess what? She gave more than everyone else. Now, this offering that she gave, what was it? Let me help you a little bit. The Hebrew, I mean, the Greek word used is a word that is for uh, coinage that would equate to about... 164th of a denarius. So now you understand, right? Anybody carrying a denarius with them today? Okay, what is a denarius? A denarius was a coinage that was measured in value by this. A denarius, think of a denarius as one laborer's one day pay. It was a very common amount to be paid to a common day laborer for their labor. 
So in our culture, probably the best way to think about this would be think of a minimum wage daily worker and they're paying for one day a good eight-hour day. That is a denarius. Well, this amount of this small copper coin equated to one-sixty-fourth of that. Now, because I'm looking at my friend Greg Meyer on the back. So, Greg, real quick off the top of your head, how much is that in today's value? Okay, not much. Okay, man, I love you letting me call you out like that, okay? Yeah, let me, let me help you out. I, I pulled out my calculator and I did the math. At today's increased minimum wage in California, because if you're back in West Virginia where I grew up, it would be much less. But in California, at $9 an hour, this equates to $1.12. So about a buck twelve. So she, she comes and she opens her purse and she has $1.12. That's about all she has. And she looks at it and she gets ready to give it because she's come to worship. Now, under Jewish tradition, the starting point for giving was how much? Anybody know? 10% or a tithe. You were taught in Jewish law to, to, be, to worship God by always bringing to Him a tenth of what He had given to you. Now, we don't know her overall situation, all right? But if that would be the case, then about a tithe, she could tithe on what she had by giving the 12 cents. In fact, the 12 cents would have been almost exactly a tithe of what she had. So if she dropped in a, a dime or 11 cents, rounded up to 12, she would be tithing and she'd have a dollar left when she left to go to Taco Bell and get lunch. But the reality is she did a radical thing. She opened her purse, she saw that all that she had left in her name was a dollar 12, a buck 12. She takes out the 12. If I can embellish this a little bit for drama's sake. She takes out the 12 cents, the tithe. She drops it. She takes the rest of the coin. Drops it too. She drops in the buck 12, which was all she had to her name. And then she went to worship in the temple. And Jesus said, wow, did you see that? And Jesus calls attention to her in contrast to the, to the wealthy guys and gals that have been coming by with their bags of money and dumping the bags of money in out of their wealth. And Jesus says she gave more. And that's the second big part of the story. The great surprise, what I call the surprise assessment to this surprise assignment, is Jesus declares the widow gave more than everybody else. Now, that instantly causes me to ask a couple questions of the passage, which is, can Jesus count? Okay, because obviously she didn't give more money, but Jesus said she gave more than all the wealthy ones who had dumped out of their, out of their wealth from their bags. So what are we talking about this morning? Here's some questions. Why did Jesus draw attention to this lady? And why would he say she gave more? And what I want to do is talk about how that applies to our life and our giving, but not just our giving. When I got into this passage this week, I began to realize, God began to show me, Dale, this is not just about giving and money. It applies there. This is about life. And I'm going to show you why. She gave more. How does Jesus define more? Well, you have to realize, next part of your outline, Jesus had a different measure of wealth. He had a different definition of more. And I'm going to show you three things. Number one, she gave more than all of them because she gave more sacrifice. See, we measure the size of gifts in our giving. God measures the size of our sacrifice. They gave, here's the exact phrase, because they gave out of their what? 
surplus. They may have given very generously, but the fact of the matter is they had a lot, and they had a lot, and Jesus said, you know, nothing wrong with that. In fact, Jesus is not criticizing this giving of these people. He's just saying, this widow is who you want to emulate, not these rich guys. And what he's saying is they actually uh, gave less than she did because she gave more sacrifice. God is always impressed, you might say. He takes note of gifts that are sacrificial gifts. It's kind of interesting, too, that as I look at the gospel and I think about how we respond to the gospel in giving, that the, uh, one of the greatest passages in the Bible is 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And uh, if you do your daily encounters with me this week, which I hope all of you do, you'll actually go to this passage and read the story of the Macedonian church. And the Macedonian church was, was, uh, was highlighted by the Apostle Paul for their extreme generosity and their extreme love for God and their extreme faith. Why? Because it says this, they gave out of their poverty. They gave. In fact, it says they begged for a chance to, to, to contribute to the cause that they were giving to, which was in this case back then a collection being made to help the impoverished, afflicted, persecuted church of Jerusalem. And, and, and when they heard about that, they said, yeah, we may be the poorest church in all of Asia Minor, but we want to give. Don't let us miss the chance to give. And he says out of their poverty, they gave above and beyond their ability to even give. And he highlights that. And when he comes to the end of that discussion about teaching on giving, it's a great passage, he concludes with this statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 when he says, and thanks be to God for His incredible gift to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what he does is he connects the gift of Jesus on the cross, sacrifice, to His will for how he wants us to love God so much in response to the cross that we give in a sacrificial way. So that at times, we don't just give out of our surplus. Yeah, I've got something left this month so I can give. But even when it hurts, we want to worship in our giving. He says that gets the attention of God. You might say it's gospel-modeled giving. Over the years, I've had a chance to uh, see people give large and small gifts. And I've seen large gifts given sacrificially. I've seen small gifts given sacrificially. I've seen large gifts being given with no sacrifice needed. And I've seen small gifts given with no sacrifice needed. But the first lesson of the morning is this. God says, follow the example of the cross when it comes to your giving. God wakes up when we sacrifice something for others. So sacrificial giving is what was indeed modeled. In my first church, I thought, you know, where's one of the best examples over the years? Uh, and, I, and I saw this in contrast because in my very first church, we were meeting on a university campus. We had no buildings. We had no property. We just had Jesus and a bunch of people, and we were worshiping and having a great time. And in some ways, it's some of the best years I ever had in ministry. But then we were kicked off the campus by the university and told, you got to go find a building or build a building. And so we, we looked around, and, and our ministry was focused on college students at the university, and that's why we met on campus. And, and, we, and, we, and, we, and we, we faced a bit of a dilemma because we had one guy in the church that I knew that had money. This guy owned his own business. He was well-known in the community. He was quite successful. He loved, he loved Christ. Great guy. 
But uh, he also owned, owned land. And right on the edge of town where, they're, where they were building the new housing developments and stuff, he owned an entire farm. So he came to us as elders or leaders of the church and he said, you know, I want to give you uh, 10 acres of, uh, of frontage road right off of my farm for the new church. And we can build it out there. And it'll be right across from the homes and it's a great location. You're, it's a gift. And he offered it to the church as a gift. Now the dilemma was the church uh, was focused on college students as well as the community. And we knew that to reach college students, we wanted to stay close to them. So we had a big debate as to whether or not to build this building on this free land that he was offering us. So we had a church vote, and it was voted down unanimously that we should reject his offer, and even the man who made the offer voted against it. Did you hear that? Okay. Because, he said, the mission of our church is more important than the location. And, and even he said, he says, if you want to build it out there, the land is yours. It's free. You know, so, so he was offering us probably 10 acres off of his 200-acre farm. And it was a very generous offering. But to be honest, it was out of his surplus. In contrast to that, we had a young gal, a young single mom, not single mom, a young mother of, of uh, two or three children. Her name was Susan Fletcher. And Susan was a friend of Becky's and I. And, and, and I heard that Susan had made a, a commitment to give to the building of this new building and purchasing of some land, which, by the way, is another whole story because God ended up opening up a two-acre plot of land next door to the freshman dormitories. Huge, miraculous deal that God pulled off. And uh, to this day, that church sits next to the freshman dorms at that university reaching that campus for Christ. So it's incredible. But I thank God that we turned down the free land. But Susan is my story. Susan... um, had no income because she was a stay-at-home mom and her husband was not a follower of Jesus and was insistent that none of their dollars go toward the church. So Susan had no income, but she wanted to give. So you know what she did? She took a job cleaning a couple people's homes where every week she'd come in and clean their toilets, clean the bathrooms, clean the kitchen for for people that would pay her to do that. And, uh, And then she gave out of that. And she didn't just tithe out of that. She didn't give half of it. What I was shocked to learn later was she gave 100% of what she made just to help move the kingdom of God forward in terms of the church. See, that's sacrifice. See, how many of us would say, you know, I got got no options except if I clean somebody's toilet, I'll have something to give. And then you do it, and then you give it all. That was one of my favorite examples of this type of sacrificial giving. So this widow really set a standard for us. That's very, very high. It's a principle that applies not just to our giving, but to life. Because when you follow Jesus, the concept of sacrifice is central to the gospel. The concept of sacrifice was central to what Ryan taught two weeks ago when he taught on serving. The fact that we serve like Jesus. Because Jesus says, He gave up Himself to meet our needs. He gave of Himself Well, just as this widow gave all that she had, Jesus gave all that He had on the cross. And we see this sacrifice theme as being something that God says, this is what I want my people to be like. I want them to be people of sacrificial acts of love and generosity. It applies to my marriage whenever I decide to sacrifice to serve my wife or whenever I decide to forgive someone who's harmed me or a offended me and ticked me off and because when i choose to forgive like jesus i do it sacrificing my right 
for justice, my right to get even, my right to be understood. When I sacrifice that and say, you know, I'm going to forgive that person and I'll let God deal with them, then that forgiveness is a sacrificial love act. So sacrifice is what caught his attention. She gave all that she had. We measure the size of gifts. God measures the size of sacrifice. Number two, second thing I see in the story was her faith. She had more faith than all the wealthy ones who were giving much more coinage, but not as much sacrifice or faith. We track finances, God tracks faith. God is looking to build our faith more than our finances. That's his objective. How can I get you to trust me more? And her gift was an incredible gesture of saying, God, I trust you to take care of me. As I mentioned earlier, she could have tithed off of her coinage and kept enough probably to get a a, a meal, some fish, some bread uh, that could have been bought from a street vendor after the after after she left temple that day but she took all that she had and the phrase that's used in the passage it says she gave all that she had to live on this is it this is it she couldn't even buy a meal as she went out of the temple but she did it because she felt like if god wants me to give this then i'm going to give it because god will take care of me He will supply my needs. And that's what God is wanting us to learn from this, I think. I think of the passage in 1 Timothy 6.17 that warns us that, that as our income grows, our temptation is to actually have less faith in God, not more faith. It's, it's been proven over and over that as people's income grows, statistically, the percentage of that income that they give does not go up, it usually goes down. Wealthy people give a smaller percentage of their income than the poor do, than the middle class do. So as we, as we get more, we kind of get addicted to more, and we just tend to adjust our standard of living up because it feels good. And there's nothing wrong with enjoying the blessings of God. But here's the danger. Here it is. I'll, sh- I'll show it to you on the screen. Here's the danger. 1 Timothy 6.17 says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of their riches. But on God, who richly supplies us, see the contrast? Who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. By the way, so if you think that this story is teaching that all of us should give 100% of everything we have, every time we go to church, that's not the point. God says there's nothing wrong with even enjoying some of the the, uh, fruit of your labor and some of the some of the blessings that is provided by hard work and the blessings of God on our lives. Nothing wrong with enjoying some of that. But he says the danger is we start enjoying it too much. We start loving it too much and we, number one, become conceited. We think we're better than other people because we have more than them. And then we fix our hope on the uncertainty of our riches instead of on the God who supplied those very riches. He says watch out for that. It's dangerous. See, now I'm starting to understand why Jesus wanted his disciples and us not to miss this widow's simple act of generosity. Because Jesus isn't just trying to raise money for the church. He's trying to raise faith in the church. He's trying to help us learn what sacrifice looks like, what faith looks like, and how to trust God. And yes, does that impact my giving? You bet. Because one of the most common challenges in my life is every month when Becky and I decide that the first check we want to 
write, the highest priority check we will write every month will be our giving. And we've set a percentage that we're going to give, and God has been faithful to meet our needs. And, but there are times when you get unexpected expenses, and this happens and that happens, and all of a sudden you think, you know something? If we give that much this month, we cannot pay the rest of our bills. And you're, at, and you're left with a question. Okay, so do I, do I adjust to give out of my surplus? Or do I make my giving and my faith a higher priority? So money, to be blunt, for my life at least, maybe you're different. Money is where my faith gets challenged on a regular basis. This lady, this widow, stepped up to meet that challenge. More sacrifice, more faith. The third thing I see in her gift is a little more subtle because it's not directly called out unless you look behind the story. And that is, I think she exhibited more love. I think our lives were often tempted to love people or even to love God because of. I love God because of Him doing this. Or I love God because He meets my needs. Or I love God because I want to have a better life. Or I love God because I want my kids to grow up and be this way or that way. You know, there's often a because of. This widow loved God. She came to worship. The very fact that she was showing up at the temple was she was there to worship. So when you're described in Scripture as a widow who is so poor that this small amount is all she has to live on, let me tell you what that tells me about her. Number one, it tells me that she had gone through life, she had been married, and her husband had died. She had lost her husband who supported her. And then secondly, it tells me she probably had no children. You say, why do I say that? Because in the Jewish culture, it would be shameful for you to have a mother who was in need and you wouldn't take care of her. She would be cared for by her family in that culture. So the fact that she was penniless and out, and this was all she had, implies at least that she either had very young children or no children at all. So in the story, what I'm picturing at least is an older widow, probably never able to have kids, has a husband, loses her husband, life really stinks. And she has a decision, do I want to go to the temple and worship my God or not? The very fact that she was there tells me she loved God in spite of what her life was like. And that's the kind of love that God wants us to have. He wants us to be based on the cross and the work of Christ for us and nothing else. In other words, God, even if I lose my family, God, even if I lose my job, God, even if I lose my income, God, even less, if I've got a buck twelve to my name, yet I will love you. And I'd like to tell you that that would be an easy decision for me. I'm not sure it would be. If I lost my wife, lost my kids, I was down to a buck twelve to my name with no job and no hope, and I go to church and I pull out a buck twelve. If I'm lucky, I tithe the twelve cents. And I keep the dollar so I can go down Birmingham to my favorite 99 cent fish taco place at the Valero gas station. Amen? Anybody else know about that place? Oh, you ought to check it out. See, that's where she would have gone. There would have been a version of that for her. A street vendor that would have sold her a little bit of fish and a little bit of bread for what equates to a dollar. But she gave her last dollar because she had 
a desire to sacrifice that was rooted in more faith and more love for her God. And that's what the Christian life is to be like. See, the danger is we can miss out on life if we begin to love money too much. And that's why I'm excited about giving this sermon. A couple of people that heard I was preaching on money today, they said, oh, Dale, you must hate that. You hate, to, you know, nobody likes to hear pastors talk about money. You know, people will probably walk out the door as soon as you start. In fact, they probably won't even show up. Those of you showed up, you didn't know what I was talking about. I fooled you by titling it, Be Rich. <laughs> but you showed up. I'm just teasing. Maybe. You know why I like to teach on this? It's because of this warning. 1 Timothy 6.10 says this. It says, For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs, many pains, many a pang, many hurts. In other words, he's not saying that money is the root of all evil. By the way, don't misquote Scripture. He's not saying that money is the problem. It's the lust for money. Gotta have it. Want it more than I should. Can't be happy without it. That's what that means. The, the love or lust for money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some have even wandered away from the faith in God because of it. See, this is so important. If I don't teach you about money and how to think about it and handle it in life, in light of the gospel and Christ and who He is, I am doing you a disservice. In fact, you should fire me if I'm not willing to talk about money. Because it is impossible to build a healthy disciple of Jesus without talking about money. That's the truth. So I'm going to get on this topic often. I'm going to do a 10-week series just on money. Maybe not. At least maybe not right now. But it really is life, isn't it? I mean, we have to listen to the Word of God and understand how Jesus is wanting His disciples to see and how this is what sacrifice looks like. This is what generosity looks like. This is how you ought to be willing, if God prompts you to do so, to give Him whatever He asks for because your faith enables your generosity. See, people think that generosity requires big finances. No, no, no. It just requires big faith. Sacrifice is rooted in faith. Faith is rooted in love. Love is rooted in the cross. It's really that simple. So how do I help you put this into practice this week? I want to leave you with a couple quick thoughts. One truth about yourself and then some thoughts the truth about yourself that I want to unveil to you today is most of you in this room are extremely wealthy. Now, some of you are thinking, wow, Dale, let me know about this after church, okay? I must have something you know about me that I don't know, because I think you're talking about the guy down the road, but I'm not wealthy. How wealthy are we? Six million, no, six billion people on the planet. Let me talk about average incomes. This, these stats come from an excellent book I'd highly recommend to you by Jen Hatmaker called Interrupted, When Jesus Wrecks Your Comfortable Christianity. Okay, and it's a very good read. I highly recommend it. So she's done some good research. Here's what she says. The bottom 20% of humanity lives on an average of 23 cents per day. 
These are the poorest of the poor around the planet. These people are desperate and without help, they face death. Their only goal is survival and they're probably not making it. That's 20% of the planet. The next 30%, if you add them in, let's talk about the bottom 50%. The bottom 50% as a whole average $2.5 per day. That's about 3 billion people. This would include the subsistence farmers that we support and encourage the training of how to support themselves better in Rwanda. And if you're not involved in Empower a Hero, I encourage you to pick up a brochure on your way out and read about a program that we endorse called Empower a Hero focused on Rwanda. And uh, if you decide to give to it, 29 bucks a month is the entry point. You can support the training of people that are trying to leave prostitution behind and leave things behind like that and instead be able to support themselves with a skill. And, uh, and then you put one of these tags on that map. And my goal by the end of this year, we, I'd, I'd like to see the whole map covered with these. So just pick up a brochure, pray about it, and read about it. If you like it, go online and give. But those people would be included in this 50%. The average Rwandan pastor or farmer, he, pastor, he, he uh, farms to feed his family and then lives on about a dollar a day. These are the people that we're connected with as we serve and travel and go there to help equip them for ministry. So you have an investment in their life. Let's jump to the other end, the top 16%. To hit the top 16% of the world, you need 25000 per year. That's getting up pretty high. To hit the top 4%, you need to make 35000 per year. What do you think it takes to be in the top 1% of income in the world? A couple guesses? 50? Anyone? 60? Anyone want to go 100? 100? Do I hear 200? I'm not auctioning this thing off, okay? Yeah. First guess was right. 50,000 per year puts you in the top 1% of humanity. Now, some of you are already ahead of me. You're thinking, yeah, Dale, but we live in a much more expensive place to live than Rwanda or Congo or, or India or a lot of these places. And that's true. It is more expensive to live here. I don't deny that. But we cannot escape the fact that you know, we, we live in such a blessed and wealthy culture because we have more. So we spend more. So everything costs more. And it's kind of an endless cycle of consumption. And it's so easy to get drawn into that. So what this tells me is we as Christians have a huge responsibility. We face a great danger from our wealth, but also have great opportunity and great responsibility. So what do we do with it? Here, here's my closing tips. And all of these will come from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 10 to 19. So here's my closing tips. Number one, focus on loving God, not money. And the way you do that is by making worship a weekly priority in your life. The love of money is a hunger that will never be satisfied. The only way to get away from the love of money is to run towards something that you love more. You can't outrun the love of money. It'll chase you down and kick your backside. It'll conquer you. Unless you are running to something greater, which I believe is the person in the call of Jesus Christ. Love God. Focus on loving God, and that's the first step toward managing your money. Number two, trust God, not your money. 
Don't buy into the idea that money gives you security. It does not. Make God the base of your security in life. 1 Timothy 6.17, I've already read to you. Don't put your hope in the uncertainty of riches. They come and go. But on God who richly supplies us. Number three, serve others. Match your wealth with your works. If God has given you extra blessing and extra wealth, then serve Him and others with it. 1 Timothy 6.18 goes on to say this. It says, Don't put your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies them. And it says, And instruct those who are rich to also be rich in good works. So, you know, along with your money, don't think that because you write a big check that you're that you don't need to be serving people and serving Christ. Big checks are not an excuse to not serve. We need to be serving the kingdom and serving the king as well as writing big checks if God enables us to write big checks. But the key is serve. He says, match your wealth with a wealth of service is what 1 Timothy 6 says. Then it goes on, number four. Yes, it says, and give more. Find joy in generosity. Generosity, once you start doing it, actually is fun. Nothing wrong with gifts, large or small, that come out of a big love, a strong trust, and a desire to serve. But say, Lord, how can I better use my blessings to serve others, advance your kingdom, and especially help those who are poor and those around the world in desperate need? That's why I get so excited that Seacoast, as a church, if you don't know this, we have increased every year by God's grace and your generosity. We've been able to grow in this. Many of you are showing signs of growing in generosity. So let me tell you, I see that and I know that. At the same time, many of you are still trying to figure this thing out. So look to give more. If I were to challenge you with a goal, it would be this. To start with saying, God, I want to... I want to take a radical step and begin to give 10% of everything you give me back to you off the top out of my love for you and my trust in you to provide for me and see if God doesn't provide. You say, well, Dale, I can't do that. For those who have been blessed to do this from our youth, Becky and I began doing this when we were first married. It's easy. In fact, it's not sacrifice because we've adjusted our lifestyle and I have a very blessed lifestyle. If you know me, I live in a beautiful home that's almost embarrassingly beautiful and nice and God's blessed me over the years in ways that we never expected or, 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 or even planned for. And, but yet, when you, know, when you get on a pattern of giving back to God the first 10% of what He gives you, it actually, after a while, you've just adjusted to it. It's not really sacrificial for us. We have to give over and above that to sacrifice. But I'll tell you something. For most of you, you're not there yet. And for you to take this step and say, I want to trust God and give 10% uh, of what He gives me, that will require sacrifice for you because you're going to have to give up something to free up that income. I guarantee you. You're going to have to cut back on the cable stations and learn to survive on 49 stations alone instead of the whole package of how many? How, how high does the number go? 450? Okay, yeah. And up. Mine run into the thousands. I don't even know what's up there. But anyway, it's there. So, that, you know, say, God, teach me how to, 
to give more, to find joy in generosity. And last but not least, invest in eternity. Know that Jesus said it this way. He says, Fools lay up their treasure on earth. Lay up treasure in heaven where it'll, ne- it'll never rust or be destroyed or stolen. It'll be part of your eternal existence. And it's a strange but wonderful statement that Jesus makes. That God does promise to reward generosity in heaven. It's repeated in 1 Timothy 6.19. He says, lay up a foundation for the future that is secure. And he's talking about generosity of life, generosity of service, generosity of giving. It's a lifestyle. More sacrifice, more faith, more love. And out of that, just do what comes natural. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for the challenge that this poor widow laid down for us. Thank you for Jesus drawing attention to her. And I pray, Father, that as we respond to you with some worship even now, I pray we sing a little louder, we sing with passion, but most of all, we sit and we reflect on your grace and your goodness. Thank you that your sacrifice on the cross is the ultimate greatest motivation that moves me to want to love more, trust more, give more, even to the point of sacrifice. So Father, I pray that this week as you give opportunities for each of us to sacrifice something for someone else, I pray that you would uh, remind us of of this poor widow. In Christ's name. Amen.